the incredible playable podcast. Asking the questions, Alistair Aitchison. Hello, ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends. Welcome to the Incredible Playable Podcast, the podcast where I look at things not necessarily related to video games, but certainly playful and game-like, and connect them back to games to find out what we can learn from them and what they maybe have to say. This is episode number three, and I ask you all to now put your fingers on your buzzers for this starter question. Whether Mr Mutt with his own hands made it or not has no importance. He chose it. Thought to be written by the artist himself, these words are a defence of which artwork of 1917 by Marcel Duchamp, initially presented under the pseudonym R. Mutt. Known by a single word title, it comprises a ready-made white porcelain urinal. A ready-made white Porcelain urinal. Art fans in the audience might recognise this piece from the description and know that it is called Fountain. The correct answer to this question is Fountain. And the question comes from a TV show called University Challenge. If you haven't heard of it before, it's a show we have here in the UK, a quiz show with a very simple gimmick. The questions are really hard. The answer to the above question was Fountain. If you know the artwork, then well done. If not, Fountain is a porcelain urinal turned up on its side and signed by a fictional artist called R. Mutt and then placed in an art gallery. It's a piece by the surrealist artist Marcel Duchamp And it's one of the pieces kind of used as an example when people talk about the question of what is art. But I'm not here to talk about the urinal, I'm here to talk about the question. Because if you got that question right, then well done to you. You just scored 10 points for your university team. Well done. And you now get the chance to answer three bonus questions. If you didn't get it right, don't worry. Because if you were on TV right now, you would have three friends by your side and they might know it. Honestly, if you're on TV right now and you're listening to this, you're in the middle of a game show. Stop listening to me and get on with the questions. The way University Challenge works is that there's two teams of students, each representing their universities, and they compete to answer the questions. Starter questions are worth 10 points each and you're not allowed to confer with your team. You have to buzz in to answer, and if you interrupt the quiz master and get it wrong, then your team loses 5 points. If you get a starter question right, you get the 10 points, and 3 bonus questions get asked to your team. The bonus questions are worth 5 points each, you can confer with your teammates, and there's no time limit. Other than that, it's a pretty simple game show, and I've just told you basically the entirety of the rules. But what I like about University Challenge is how this idea of creating a quiz show where the questions are really difficult generates an interesting style of question and a sort of emergent gameplay that wouldn't happen otherwise. Let's have a look at how this question is structured. 
Whether Mr. Mutt, with his own hands made it or not, has no importance. Thought to have been written by the artist himself, these words are a defence of which artwork of 1917 by Marcel Duchamp, originally presented under the pseudonym R. Mutt. Known by a single word title, it comprises a ready-made porcelain urinal. If you think you know the answer, you should buzz in as soon as you do, because if you leave it too long, the imposing team might know it, and they'll buzz in before you do. But if you think you know the answer, how sure are you that you know the answer? Are you sure enough to risk losing five points? There's a reason the question is so long. The game show is actually a push your luck game, and each phrase is adding a little bit of clarity to bring you ever closer to knowing the answer, while still having to remember that your opponents are also getting that same amount of clarity. It's a drip feed of information asking you, are you sure? Are you sure? Is it worth taking the risk now? Whether Mr. Mutt with his own hands made it or not has no importance. If the name Mr. Mutt rings any bells to you, it might be a chance to buzz in. Perhaps Mr. Mutt makes you think of Marcel Duchamp, and maybe it makes you think of the porcelain fountain, but maybe it makes you think of a cartoon dog. Thought to be written by the artist himself. So we've got Mr. Mutt and an artist. Do these two ideas go together for you now? Mr. Mutt, art, are you thinking Marcel Duchamp, fountain? But if you are, it's kind of 50-50 whether the question is going to ask for the artist or the artwork. Do you take the 50-50 gamble? Of which artwork of 1917 by Marcel Duchamp? So if you do already know the answer, now that 50-50 has gone away. If you know that Mr. Mutt is the name on the side of Marcel Duchamp's urinal, then you know it's the artwork that's being looked for. Although you still don't know if what the quizmaster is looking for is the name Fountain or the object, a urinal. If Mr. Mutt doesn't ring any bells for you, but Marcel Duchamp does, you might be thinking about how the fountain is probably his most well-known piece of work, so most likely to appear in a quiz. And then the final line. Known by a single word title, it comprises a ready-made white porcelain urinal. So now you have all the information. It's the urinal in the art gallery. But that buzzing is the opposing team buzzing in to answer the question. Should you have waited this long? Or should you have gambled while you had the chance? I play University Challenge at home with my family. We watch along with the TV and we have house rules. We have to answer before anyone else in the room and anyone else on TV. Most importantly, there is no penalty for interrupting, but your first answer is final. University Challenge, even with our additional house rules, is quite a simple set of rules. And the premise is equally simple. The questions are super hard and there's lots of them. 
This motivates the question writers to write these kind of push your luck style of questions, where the specific details are being drip fed to the contestants. These are questions that conjure up a kind of drama, a risk and intensity building as the question goes on, which puts the contestants and players at home at the edge of their seats. The contestants know nearly enough to be sure of getting the right answer, but not quite enough just yet. Do I hold on a little longer or do I buzz? And of course, we're going through the same thing at home. But you don't actually need to know the answer to do well at University Challenge. There's a lot of opportunities in the show to get away with guessing, and these drip-fed questions, which slowly pan out over multiple sentences, give you clues to narrow down the guessing game and have a decent stab. Maybe you've figured out that a question is about impressionist painters. And off the top of your head, you can name three Impressionist painters. So which one sounds closest to the other ideas going on in the question? Or how quickly can you pluck an Impressionist painter from your mind before your dad, who's the resident art expert and will actually know the answer, chimes in? Gauging the risk is now based on how well do you know the other people you're playing with? Yeah, all right, let's go for this. Um, so, the challenge is I am going to try and get a perfect score in University Challenge. Um, every question I get right before it's announced on the TV, I get a point for. Um, and my objective challenge. is to try and get a perfect Asking score. I've not seen this episode before. I mean, I might have 10 years ago. It's an episode from 2010, which Hello, is the year the I graduated university. university In December 2020, I hopped onto Twitch to try and get a perfect score in University Challenge. So, what I did is I watched the same episode of University Challenge over and over again on a loop, answering the questions as I heard them. I had an on-screen tracker showing how many questions I'd got right in that uh, particular viewing, and my goal was to watch the show over and over until I got a grand total of 86 right answers. That is a perfect score. My expectation was that it was going to be a Sisyphean task, that there'd always be one or two questions that I'd forget, and I'd have to go right back to the beginning again and start from zero. I wondered what would happen as I got ever closer to that perfect score, as my mind got tired and the process of memorising these 86 tiny details became harder and harder. How many attempts would it take me? 10? 20? How many hours of paying attention to the same episode would I need to do? I wanted to see what would happen to me as these complex phrases repeated over and over and kind of warped in my mind. Would these repeated phrases and concepts take on new meanings? 
what unexpected things would happen once I got 8 hours deep into this. What words and phrases would become totems or take on a new significance. I wanted to take this game show and turn it into something new, something unknown and just see what it would generate. But in the end, it actually only took five viewings of the episode to get a perfect score. That is, two and a half hours of play. Before going into this, friends had advised me to kind of make a mind palace, imagining wandering through a house room by room, and in each room is one of the answers. And I'd kind of erred against strategizing it too much because I wanted the raw experience of trying to learn this by by virtue of taking on the same task over and over. But in reality, the Quizmaster made a mind palace for me. If he said Paris, I knew to say Place de la Concorde. If he said Beef, I say Pastrami. The hardest answers to memorise were Greek words and ancient locations, because I couldn't visualise these. It's amazing how much of a difference knowing how to spell a word makes to your ability to memorise it. But by attempt number five, these had become the three words that I couldn't remember. And that was what I used to remember them. So in terms of generating art, I don't think it did what I wanted it to. You know, there was no dark moment of the mind where some unexpected outcome got generated. The outcome was mundane. I beat the challenge. That's it. But I want to view this not in terms of the outcome, but in terms of what I was wanted that thing to do. I want to talk about why in University Challenge I saw an interesting opportunity to make playful art or playful performance. University Challenge is about one thing. The questions are really hard. That's it. That's your premise. Out of that simple premise, we get these consequences. That there are a large number of questions, which deals with the fact that if the audience just watched a bunch of hard questions and couldn't get any of them right, then it would be unsatisfying. So let's have a lot of them. And then there's this pattern that emerges in the style of questions that get asked. Because it's not satisfying if the questions are simply either you have the knowledge or you don't have the knowledge. Emergent strategy is a phrase kind of commonly used in game design to talk about strategies which emerge naturally from the rules. And I feel like the design of questions in University Challenge is itself emergent. It emerges from the fact that the question should be really hard. And what gets generated out of that is these sort of strange, procedurally generated wordscapes. Thomas Middleton, author of The Changeling, A Game at Chess and The Witch, is thought to have contributed to both circumvallate and foliate are the four forms of papillae or small bumpy projections. In which case, I want the decade in which the following took place. Firstly, an adjective meaning waggish or characterised by flippant or inopportune... 
St Andrew's Gardener. Um, 11. Correct. University Challenge is made of these long, rambling sentences that culminate in these single, usually easy-to-visualise ideas. When I did the stream, the stream had one clear objective. Get a perfect score. That was the one thing that motivated the stream. This subverted what the show was supposed to be, because I was no longer focusing on playing University Challenge well, and instead on committing to memory these 86 set phrases. And by turning University Challenge into this one singular task, I interacted with it in a different way. At the beginning, I was trying to answer the questions like they were difficult quiz questions. But as it went on, it became about these words and mental images, and what words and events would happen on screen, and with no real connecting context, caused me to pluck out of my mind another idea. I've just said coffee, so I know the next thing I'm going to say will be Euripides. My intent as a performer was to use this single task of getting a perfect score to put me in a state that I couldn't predict in advance. I didn't know how I was going to respond to being eight hours deep into this challenge and it seeming uncompletable, of having 30 minutes and build up always leading up to the same disappointing missing out on one or two points. And what interested me was seeing what unexpected thing would arise from this. This idea of using games as a way to generate art is, is not, it's not entirely new. And it's something that the Dadaists and the Surrealists, so that's artists like Salvador Dali, Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, who we mentioned at the beginning of the show, and René Magritte, were very keen on. There is a game that the Surrealists used to play back in the 20s called The Exquisite Corpse. And you might have played something similar in school. Uh, it's a quite common writing and creativity exercise. You take a piece of paper and you fold it into four sections. The first player draws the head in the top section and folds it over, leaving just enough of the line showing that the next player knows where to start. The second player, following on from those line endings, draws the top half of the torso, the third player draws the second half of the torso, maybe the beginning of the legs, and then the fourth player finishes the legs and does the feet. But no player can see what the other players before them have drawn, only where they finished. Then you unfold your collected drawing and see what you created. What usually comes out of this is some kind of strange, bizarre-looking figure that doesn't quite conform to the expectations of perspective, or geometry, or anatomy. Something both beautiful and monstrous. 
an exquisite corpse. For the surrealists, they use this as a way to create the kind of images that they wouldn't have come up with otherwise. The bizarre figures looked nothing like anything one of them would have come up with individually, and there was this belief that what they were doing was tapping into some kind of collective unconscious, that there was this mood that that caused them to collectively gravitate towards certain ideas or certain trends that seemed to carry across all four sections of the page. Or maybe these juxtapositions of all the different styles and ideas sat next to each other without context would spark some kind of conflict, that it would look unpleasant in a way that was interesting because because it was putting together ideas that aren't normally put together side by side. The Exquisite Corpse was a game, a set of rules, used to generate an outcome that was unexpected. We see similar things in situations where the art world has used video games as a source of generative art. I've been reading a book called Works of Game by John Sharp, and in that he describes a piece called IOQ3A Paint by an artist called Julian Oliver. Julian Oliver took the video game Quake 3 Arena because it had a bug in it that caused lights and colours to get smeared across the screen under certain conditions. What he did is he created a series of bot characters who would run around a multiplayer environment in ways that would trigger this bug to happen. And then, sitting on his computer, he would jump from in-game camera to in-game camera, from bot to bot, taking screenshots of the most beautiful visual images being generated by this bug. Quake 3 is a complex game. It's got designed environments, it's got AI-controlled enemies, it's got physics and collision detection and walls, a variety of weapons, it's got tactical shooting action, and Oliver's bots turned it into something totally different. And this different thing was centred around one central idea, triggering this bug. All these other elements which had been originally put into the game by the designers were now really just the kind of the box of paints that was being used. Ultimately, the purpose of the game had been transformed. It's the smearing effect that becomes the most important thing, and the designed elements from the original game are now just a starting point to work with. From another angle, there's artists who've used video games to create art, but not by using it as a generative tool, but instead by subtracting from the game and seeing what's left behind. The artist Cory Archangel uh, famously hacked a Super Mario Bros. cartridge to remove Mario, and the levels, and the jumping, 
and winning and losing and basically everything until all that was left was the scrolling clouds. So there's a case where a game which was once about many different things, many different inputs and activities and uh, different enemies and graphical assets was reduced down until it was about one single idea. Clouds. In another piece of work called Beat the Champ, Corey Archangel set up a series of bowling games. These were old console games and arcade games spanning a period of about 20 years, and hooked up to controllers which were rigged to throw gutter balls over and over again. There was no way to play them, you could just sit and watch the projections on the screens as these games failed over and over again. It took these products which had complex physics systems designed to judge where the pins should fall and when they should knock into the other pins and things like that, and just used it for a repeated action of failure, creating this kind of cacophony of the sounds of disappointment all out of sync with each other. A range of complex systems turned into one singular idea. The noise of repeated failure. There's an artist team called Jody, who created a piece called S.O.D. It's made from the video game Wolfenstein 3D, which was one of the first successful 3D shooter games. It leaves all of the gameplay exactly as it is, but replaces the graphics with abstract shapes. And these abstract shapes are drawn in one bit black or white graphics. So the game is still technically playable. Everything from the controls to the enemy placements to the artificial intelligence all work exactly as they did. It's just that you can't see it in the way that you used to. And it's not even as if the information isn't there. The information is still there. But because a wall no longer looks like a wall, and an enemy no longer looks like an enemy, as a human being, your capacity to visually process this information as a realistic 3D space is what's taken away from you. The one thing that was important is actually the bit that's been removed. Wolfenstein 3D was sold on this idea of it being a realistic, for the time at least, a realistic 3D world that you can fluidly navigate. With all the new graphics they've added, they've taken away your ability to imagine this world as real. There was an experiment I did a few years ago where I took the four buttons that I'd made for a game called Codex Bash, these four kind of disconnected buttons on the end of massive long cables, and I turned them into a controller for Sonic the Hedgehog. The way it worked was that the controller was shared between four players simultaneously, and each button was mapped to a different action. So one button would make Sonic go left, 
one button would make Sonic go right, one button would make Sonic crouch, and one button would make Sonic jump. Nobody would know what their button did until they pressed it and saw what Sonic did on screen. These roles, these actions, mapped to each button, would randomly switch every 30 seconds. So the team had to constantly be experimenting and communicating in order to figure out how to move Sonic through the level. Sonic the Hedgehog is a game about smooth movement and powerful, fast speed. Changing the control system and taking away the sense that your thoughts map one-to-one into actions in the game because you forget about the control pad. Taking that away created a new experience. Sonic was no longer smooth and fast and powerful. He was now clumsy and the communication was frantic and funny slapstick moments would happen as Sonic lazily sauntered into a pit of spikes. Land masses that were never designed to be obstacles now became these puzzle challenges that the team had to solve by using good communication and timing. I didn't make this because I was trying to make it an art piece. For me, what I was exploring here was just to find out what the gameplay consequences would be. But the outcome from that experiment is similar to the outcome of Jody's work editing Wolfenstein 3D. Jody challenges how much of our interaction with games is reliant on us being able to imagine them as real-world spaces. My experiment with Sonic challenges how much of our interaction with these games is reliant on our ability to forget that there's a controller in our hands. Most games are built on one central idea. The one thing that the game is about. And then all the other design decisions that go into it are a consequence. Sonic is about running fast. Quake is about shooting the bad guys. Bowling games are about the physics of knocking pins into other pins. And University Challenge is about very difficult questions. So when you take a finished game, even a game as simple as the game show University Challenge, and change that one thing into something else, you can create a new experience. Something that was always in there, but was kind of untapped. Just like how the exquisite corpse was always there inside the room, shared between the minds of the four artists. You have all of this initial content that was built to serve the original intent of the game, but now it just exists as a landscape of words, or a landscape of levels, or a landscape of mechanics. You take on a new goal, and that causes you to interact with this content in a totally different way. Maybe what comes out of it is a fun game in its own right. But maybe what comes out of it isn't fun. But 
it's sure as hell interesting. Maybe what comes out of it just makes you think, and that's enough. Maybe what comes out of this weird experimentation is something that accidentally has something to say. One thing that I'm exploring right now is having that one thing be input from an audience. Recently, I've been playing around with streaming using the service Twitch and using audience messages typed into the chat box as a way for the audience to give input that I have to respond to. One thing that I did was try to come up with 200 game ideas in two hours, where every message typed in by the audience became a prompt that I had to design a game about. This included both messages designed to be prompts, and messages that were simply asking, what the hell is this? I'm really interested in this process of taking a game and subverting it, or taking a performance and giving the audience an opportunity to subvert it, perhaps to throw the performer off. I like seeing what unexpected effects get generated in that process, but I also like that that's something that the audience can be in on. That everybody who has come to this room, who has come to this streaming service to be a part of this, can actively do something to, to add to this pot of creativity. That anyone in the audience, anyone who's a spectator, can be a part of that creative process and can be a part of that exploration. That that creation can come from a collective of people coming together, whether or not they see themselves as artists. Ladies and gentlemen and non-binary friends, thank you for listening to the Incredible Playable Podcast, Episode 3. My name is Alistair Aitchison. You can find me on Twitter at A-G-H-E-S-O-N, that's A-G-A-I-T-C-H-E-S-O-N. And if you follow me, you can find out more about the things that I'm doing. Lately, I've been doing interactive performances on Twitch, and when I am planning to do something, Twitter is where I will usually post to let people know when and where it's going to happen. Thank you once again. I hope you all have a fantastic day and look after yourselves. Goodbye.